0: Hello, and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand, Cleopatra's Bling. In season two of the Cleopatra's Bling podcast, we continue to meet the creatives and craftspeople who inspire our artisanal jewellery collections. Last season, we met with a beekeeper poet, a wild woman dancer, and a mermaid historian. This season, we begin a new series of journeys recorded from my home in Melbourne, Wherever you're listening from, this podcast invites you into those intimate conversations which bring tradition and practices from the past into the present. Our guest today truly knows how to celebrate the simple pleasures of life through creating recipes that make basic seasonal produce sing. Her cooking is influenced by her Maltese upbringing and the time she's spent in Tuscany, As a cookbook author, her creations have made their way into thousands of homes in Australia and around the world via the magazine she contributes to and her recently released cookbook, A Year of Simple Family Food. Her latest cookbook, Ostro, has been praised by Nigella Lawson as life-enhancing. This week, we're talking with Julia Busutil Nishimura, a Melbourne-based cook working with seasonal produce to create amazing family meals
1: did my master's in teaching and I became a primary school Italian teacher and all through this I was just kind of plugging away and then, yeah, one day a publisher approached me at a farmer's market in Melbourne
0: and said, like, Let,
1: let's chat and it kind of went from there and I've always just kept on doing
0: what I loved and just hoped people would enjoy it. Julia has had a passion for cooking for as long as she can remember. With a large extended family, she recalls gatherings always being centred around food, whether it was her mother's amazing ravioli, similar to Italian ravioli, or a simple bruschetta. Now she creates modern Australian dishes that maintain a deep respect for the past. The ease with which most of her dishes can be made, mixed in with the occasional showstopper, of course, is what brought Jamie Oliver to declare that he loves her truly brilliant first book. Julia and I talked about the satisfaction that making and sharing food brings to our lives. Thanks, Julia, for being on the Cleopatra's Wing podcast and for welcoming us into your beautiful North Fitzroy home. For everyone listening, we're here today with Julia Busutil Nishimura, And I've been obviously a fan of your work for a long time, so it's a great honor to talk with you in person. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. (laughs) So first question, I guess, would be, how did you start Ostro?
1: Yeah, I mean, Ostro was the name of my website many years ago now, I think, you know, maybe nine years ago or something. Um... And I kind of started after I had been living in Italy. So I was living in a, in the countryside in Southern Tuscany. Um, I was working. Yeah, so amazing. I was working as a nanny. So I was a living, I was an au pair um, for a really beautiful family in the countryside. And they were incredible cooks and as a lot of Italians are and as well in true Italian style, the grandparents lived next door. And so there was just a lot of kind of access to old recipes and a lot of time spent in the kitchen. And I started to just document, yeah, recipes and little notes and techniques and kind of little tidbits like that. And I mean, I'd I'd always been cooking, like, since I was a kid and I'd always loved cooking and, uh, you know, I'd considered going into cookery full-time after high school, but I went a different path. But then when I went to Italy, yeah, I kind of fell back in love with slow food and seasonal cooking, the kind of food that I grew up with. Mm. It actually means the southern... Wind, one of the southern winds in Italy. And the girl who I looked after, she was telling me about all these winds, and the name Ostro just stuck with me. It just felt really generous and a beautiful name. And that's what I picked for my website. And I think originally it was just friends, you know, going on there looking at recipes and I kind of wanted to put all of them on a central spot because, you know, I had my mum asking me, mm. what was that cake you made? And a friend was like, how do you make your tiramisu? And I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to start a blog. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like the time when... Everyone they had a blog? Yeah, everyone kind of had a blog, yeah. but also like social media wasn't... I had a blog. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, social media wasn't really that existent. Mm. And yeah, it was just a really nice kind of place to put my recipes
0: lovely yeah I noticed that in Istanbul they have these very specific names to describe all the winds like you could study it and all the cloud names and all this stuff all these interesting words like there's one word I'm digressing a little bit but I have to tell you it's yakamos and it means the light of the moon on the sea
1: like it's just yeah it's
0: so beautiful
1: and I was like oh why yeah. don't we have Yakumos in English? <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I was so fascinated. And she was only 14 and I was like, how do you know so much about, like, the nature around us? And mm. Yeah, it was a really nice time
0: learning from, you know, young people and old people. and yeah. yeah. Seasonal eating as well in Naples. Like, you know, once nectarine season is over, you just don't find them until totally. next year. Yeah. Which I think is nice. So It's special. also good because you miss them then. Exactly. And then when it comes back, it's like you have that
1: yeah. childlike
0: appreciation. Definitely. So could you tell us a little bit about your Maltese upbringing?
1: Yeah. So my dad was born in the mid-40s and he was one of seven children. He was born in Malta. Um, His parents owned a grocery store essentially or was a grocery store and also shipping supplies for it was at one of the ports in Malta and they supplied a lot of like kind of general objects for the sailors. And I think it was a really hard life. You know, my, yeah, my nana had seven kids and um, worked really long hours. I don't think there was a lot of opportunity after the war in Malta. Mm. And so um, my dad is the second eldest and he migrated when he was 18. So. um, On his own or with his family? Yeah, on his own. Wow, pretty brave. Yeah, pretty brave. So he came on his own and he already had like his auntie and uncle lived Mm. in Adelaide and knew a few, you know, the Maltese community is quite, tight-knit yeah um so he knew a few people but yeah he migrated on his own and then his eldest brother came I think a year later um and then they both saved up and brought the their parents over oh, that's so nice so nice and then the rest of them came over and I think the seventh child was born in Australia so it was quite a long time I suppose between my dad coming and them all coming over but um yeah so he was In Adelaide and he was very involved in the Maltese community so you know my mum is Maltese too she was born in Australia but of Maltese parents where we grew up anyway in Adelaide was quite far away from the Maltese community and so I think that my parents really hooked onto it as a way of keeping you know that sense of closeness to their heritage Mm. and to especially my dad who probably missed home you know in some shape or form you know we cooked Maltese food all the time my dad was like the president of the cultural club in Adelaide of the Maltese club like just very passionate about you know keeping the culture alive and passing on those traditions to us and so yeah I, I kind of wish I spoke Maltese but I'm very yeah have very fun memories of you know cooking with my family and we, we, I grew up near the sea, so yeah. we used to go it's down to the, yeah, yeah, exactly. family. And I think that's why my dad picked... You know, we grew up down south, so near Wollonga, yeah. um, McLaren Vale, that kind of area. And the rest of his family were a bit more near the hills and things like that. But, um, yeah, my dad just loved the sea. And so, yeah, we grew up near the ocean and we would go down to the water and collect seawater to make ricotta. I remember like, potting broad beans with my grandma to make this Maltese dip. Um, You know, just, like, those are the kind of memories I have of that kind of closeness to Malta and – yeah I didn't realize it was anything until I went to school Mm. until I realized how different we were (laughs) but yeah it was you know my parents split up when I was six though so it was a fragmented childhood but there are still happy
0: happy memories (laughs) yeah Yeah. um so is most of your family still in Adelaide
1: yeah most of them my mum and my sister are in Melbourne oh that's good yeah which is lovely and then extended family still in Malta but
0: The rest of my immediate family in Adelaide. Nice. Yeah. So do you think your Maltese upbringing influenced your passion for cooking or do you think you would have gone that route anyway?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? But I think it definitely influenced me. It was something that I felt really connected to. You know, my brother and sister had the same upbringing and they're not really, you know, into food like I am. So I can't say, you know, for sure that it was specifically our childhood, but I think it gave me the opportunity and I was already so interested in it. I kind of gave me the access to it and my mum was really encouraging. She would, you know, buy me cookbooks when I was in high school and would take me to like nice restaurants like once a year. And just, yeah, would... From a young age, she would encourage me to, you know, cook and go shopping for ingredients and kind of plan. You know, I used to love planning her, part, like, dinner parties. Mm, that's <laughs> um, right. Yeah, so I think it was a combination of, you know, access to that food knowledge within my family, you know, because especially my aunties, you know, had, so many of them are amazing cooks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a combination
0: That's lovely. (laughs) So I know that in Austro, you mentioned the significance of dishes from the family being passed on. Are there any particular dishes that come to mind when you think of family and your upbringing?
1: Yeah. I mean, in Austro, definitely there's a recipe for aliotta, which is my grandma's fish soup, I call it. Um, But it just is like a Maltese fish soup. And yeah, those recipes are really special because, Uh you know, my mum hasn't written any of them down and you know a lot of them are just passed on orally yeah. and i do feel more and more as i grow up and as my mum my own mum gets older i feel like this responsibility to document them yeah. because i think they will be lost and yeah they're really special and it's really special to have them in a book that is has been so well received and like widely distributed because maltese food is largely kind of unknown unless mm. you're maltese <laughs> i mean people know pastizzi and I mean ravioli which are the Maltese ravioli yeah. but you know there isn't a huge kind of awareness of people like what is Maltese food and mm. I think because of its proximity you know it's near North Africa and Sicily and yeah. you know it was occupied by the British and it's kind of this melting pot and if you can grow up with it or you don't have a close connection it's kind of hard to know exactly what it is yeah <laughs>
0: I want to write more Maltese recipes I think that's exciting. So the fish soup, just to go. I'm just yeah. like, can't stop thinking about that. Now. Is that something that? What sort of fish is used in that?
1: Yeah, Yeah, so I use snapper and traditionally it would be just kind of whatever fish of the day and it would be a whole fish. You know, Mm. we'd kind of make the um, stock with it and, you know, you'd have to, I just have memories of like picking the bones out and it's not the most like delicate soup. (laughs) It's got like a whole fish in there and it's a base of, you know, garlic and tomato and then the stock. And then you put rice in and the rice cooks with the soup and so it kind of thickens it up. And then usually, yeah, mint and lemon juice. Um, Sounds great. It's so delicious. But in my book, I do a bit of a, like, I wouldn't say refined, but I just, even for me, like, it was an easier version with, you know, I make the stock and then strain it and then kind of add fish
0: into the soup. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah, and then it gives people the option, you know, to use fish stock from, you know, the fishmonger or whatever. Yeah,
0: I love it how they use everything. That's something that that I definitely learnt more about living in Europe. Yes. Yeah, in Italy and yeah. France as well. But I'd say Italy even more so. Mm. They're very conscious oh, of for sure. using everything and not wasting or, you know, mm. I think that's I mean, there's just my such my perspective. An, yeah,
1: there's such an appreciation for the producers Definitely. and the ingredients. And I think it's just like a, maybe a stronger connection to
0: the land. hundred yeah. percent. Also, like if you eat meat. I feel like in Australia we're grown up on certain cuts of meat, mm. and then when we go overseas, we're slightly confronted mm. by other bits of the animal. Mm. It sounds a bit vulgar, but no. But I think living in Italy, it's like, well, I can't just eat, you know. I feel it, and yeah, then be sure. grossed out by, you know, other yeah. parts of the animal because that's kind of. What's, in a way it's like a little bit hypocritical yeah. so I think living in Italy like you know I was made to eat things at people's <laughs> tables that I'd never eaten before yeah but then I questioned myself on my reaction sometimes totally which I never you know let them see. I was just like whoa I'm eating a brain yes which is delicious <laughs> it is but I was you know that looking at it and then eating yeah, it was like sure. pretty I mean it is so
1: like it's cultural
0: definitely you know like and
1: and so much of it is you know I grew up eating definitely not (laughs) Um, like I didn't know what that was till I was an adult I think um but you know my mum would make chicken soup with like the chicken necks which yeah here I mean most people like buy them for dog food definitely you know Mm -hmm. and I just have these memories of like my mum making chicken soup with the chicken necks and then we'd like pick pick the meat yeah. and have it with like lemon juice and salt and it was like so good but i just yeah like i didn't realize how different you know yeah. that was and i mean you know my family growing up we didn't have a lot of money mm. and you just wouldn't waste like it, no, same as in lots exactly. of parts of Italy, like why would we waste stale bread why like why would we waste the egg whites, or yeah. the even the vegetables from making a broth, like you just wouldn't waste yeah, it. Yeah, puree it or something. Yeah. yeah,
0: I know it's very it's it's very interesting. I think it's like the ethical way forward. If people are going to mm-hmm. you know continue to eat the mm-hmm. way they do, I think mm-hmm. they need there needs to be a shift. In my opinion, anyway. Mm-hmm. Also in Turkey, they're the same. They eat everything. Mm-hmm. And- so when did you discover your passion for food? Was it I mean you've sort of already answered this, but it started young. When did it sort of crystallize into your career vision?
1: Mmm. Yeah, I loved food and cooking from a really young age. Like it was, you know, I always say like my sister had music, my brother had soccer, and I had cooking. Like that um, was it was my hobby. Like it was well-rounded family. Yeah. <laughs> I just loved I loved it. And, you know, I never really saw it per se. I mean, I did see it as a career opportunity, but more of the traditional route of being a chef. Like that was the only really avenue when you're in high school. And that's the only thing you really think of that you can do. And, Mm. you know, I studied it in all the way up to year 12. I did, you know, food technology and I, you know, was subscribing to Gourmet Traveller when I was like 16. Like I was just purely obsessed. You know, I had so many cookbooks by the time I'd finished school. Um, like, I would spend w- weekends cooking and planning, and yeah, I loved it. And I, but I think, you know, I wasn't sure, like, I wanted I wanted to be in cooking, but then I was afraid that if I became a chef, I would, you know, work
0: until 4 a.m. and yeah, all that. Yeah, and
1: it was also like, it still is, but it was very like a masculine world. Yeah. And I, to be honest, like, I was really scared. Like I was, you oh, know, yeah. the pressure, like I, I loved cooking at home on the weekends and cooking for my friends and family. Like the thought of cooking in a restaurant just like terrified me. Um It is
0: terrifying. Yeah.
1: And some, you know, for some people, like my husband's a chef and it doesn't even faze him, you know, like a, a restaurant full of people doesn't even bother him mm. And I think maybe that's just his nature. Like I'm way more you know kind of anxious and yeah I
0: don't know we're just very different sensitive you probably pick up on energies I'm the same like I would it would take me hours to come down from a yeah like a shift totally and so full environment
1: yeah so I thought you know well I don't really want to be a chef I still want to like you know keep my passion for cooking Mm. so I ended up doing an arts degree um and so I studied Italian and politics at university and in between then every kind of summer here I would go across Italy and just fell more and more and more in love with Italy kind of until that point where I was the au pair and I think that kind of felt like this full circle yeah kind of felt like a bit of a homecoming and yeah I realized that I had all these things that I wanted to share and I actually loved cooking I was good at cooking and it really was the thing that kind of excited me but I think still then I didn't really know how that would turn into a career Mm.
0: you know people who wrote books were Jamie Oliver and Nigella Lawson it's so true you came out of like just after that generation yeah
1: definitely and you know I didn't have a restaurant I had a small following on social media but nothing Mm. you know I didn't know anything about publishing and so I went on to I did my master's in teaching and I became a primary school Italian teacher (laughs) And all through this, I was just kind of plugging away. And then, yeah, one day a publisher approached me at a farmer's market in Melbourne.
0: That's incredible. And said, like,
1: let's chat. And it kind of went from there. And I've always just kept on doing what I
0: loved and just hoped people would enjoy it. And so far, so good. <laughs> that's great. I love it how you've also managed to do your career and have your family mm. and nurturing life. I think that's something a lot of people would aspire to, you know, like having your thing going for you. Yes. Nurturing yourself, but then having your family.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, just think it's so important. Like, yeah, I think I grew up with, you know, my mum is amazing, you know, but she really did put aside everything for us. Like she was, she had a really amazing career. She was, she worked for the airlines and traveled the world and um, yeah, just really great experiences. But also, you know, would mm. say to us, like, you know, you, I do everything for you, you know, you are our life, you are my life, and I totally, like, now as a mom, I get that, but I also want my kids to see, you know, that I have yeah. passions and I have interests outside of, you know, them, because I think I've got two boys and I think it's especially important for them to see a, a woman, woman yeah. doing that. Um, I agree. Yeah, so... Yeah. And I'm lucky that it's, you know, I can work from home at the same time. Like it's always yeah. feels like it's contributing in this really holistic way to them and my career. It's all kind of meshed, meshed. Yeah, it's great. And you get your
0: own space and time to sort of explore what you're doing without needing to be constantly the mum. Yeah. it's really important. Yeah. Um, so I know, obviously, you're married to a Japanese man, so yes. you visit Japan quite often when you are not in a pre, pre- yeah. pandemic, <laughs> yeah. um, yep. and you have a very impressive list of restaurants and cafes in Tokyo. <laughs> um, so could you give us like a little rundown about Japan and Japanese food and what you love about it as... A food expert? Yeah,
1: a food expert. Um, yeah, so I'm married to a beautiful person called Nori. He's a chef, as I mentioned, um, and we met here in Melbourne. So, but yeah, we do go, usually we'd go once a year to Japan and oh, it's just so dynamic and, you know, varied and fun. Yeah. <laughs> like going to Japan for us is so nice and just the food is incredible. You know, I think in a way there's a lot of similarities with Italy that there are so many specialties and there are so many people specializing in just, you know, one thing for their whole life.
0: And I find that incredible. Imagine being just like one, one kind of pastry chef forever. Yeah. And I just, I think that, you know, there's enough people to sustain that, you know, you go
1: to a yakitori restaurant and it's just like mm. it's just chicken on sticks grilled over charcoal. <laughs> charcoal or you you know you just go to for a ramen and you you know unless you're in izakaya where it's like little snacks of different things but you know it's just so specialized and yeah I feel really fortunate to have experienced that with nori because I think you know I don't speak Japanese very well and so I think when you're in a country and you don't speak the language I don't think you get the whole mm, kind of you know understanding of you know a lot of things, but food as well. You know you miss out on a lot of menus that are just in Japanese and the niche um, stuff,
0: or the stuff that you wouldn't ask for. Yeah, if you didn't know.
1: totally. And yeah. It, you know exp- explainers and going to places you know a bit more off the beaten track, and yeah, the food is amazing in Japan, and also it has. There's incredible, like, patisseries. They're just really good at pastries too. Oh, they're um, good at everything. They
0: are good at a lot of packaging. things. Packaging. Yeah, the design is amazing. We have this good customer in Japan, in Tokyo, and mm. she recently bought some earrings and they got squashed on the way oh, no. and the backing came off. So she sent the one earring back for us to send back to yes. her. Yes. But she sent it mm. in this, like, Japanese, <laughs> like, packaging and I, I got the package and opened it. And I was like, "Oh my, oh my goodness. goodness!" Like it was in this like Japanese towel yeah, thing that wow. she'd folded, and I was so like, nice. "We oh. need to up our game." No. <laughs> I know. I was like, "Wow!" Like that made me feel. I showed my mum, who helps me with dispatch, and yeah. she was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like what's <laughs> so in much that? effort, so much, yeah. so much detail, and yeah. Um,
1: yeah, it's just such a special place and I think, you know, it's so frantic, like Tokyo especially, can be so frantic but then, you know, you just go one street back from the station and it's like paradise. And Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of like, yeah, just opposite things in Japan. You know, there's such old traditions and history and then such mm. new kind of, I don't know, like different scenes. Like it's just it's
0: A lot just of quirky fun. sort of sub culture stuff as well
1: yeah i know yeah we love it really missing it and i think yeah nori's super homesick at the moment i imagine yeah (laughs) but mainly for yakitori
0: (laughs) (laughs) just the some of the foods you know that you can't really replicate here i'm getting so hungry talking (laughs) to you um so we're gonna jump now to italy yeah so what what was one of the main things that drew you to italy you know i Grew up with my mum telling me
1: stories of Italy, you know, very romanticised, probably Mm. somewhat embellished. She wasn't a flight attendant, but she trained flight attendants for TAA, which is now Qantas, like back in the 70s. And so she would tell stories of, you know, sitting in the cockpit, flying to Rome just to buy a handbag on, like, Via Barberini. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, know, going... Catching, like, a quick flight over for dinner at this special restaurant. Just, like, all these kind of stories and Tuscany and the... Very Yeah. <laughs> the, like, the Cipresi trees. And mm. above my mum, my parents' bed was a, a replica painting of a Botticelli painting. And there was just that connection yeah. to Italy that... I was, you know, in my mind, it was always really kind of this beautiful place, which it is. Um, and then, yeah, it wasn't till you know, my sisters uh, learned Italian all through high school. She's five years older. And after high school, we'd planned to go travel together. And she was actually working there as an au pair. So I kind of followed in her footsteps in a way. She, you know, was fluent in Italian and I just wanted to go over and visit her. That was the main, you know, the first kind of idea. We kind of did that, you know, 10 countries in 30 days type thing as backpacking yeah. <laughs> um, when, when I was 18. And But yeah, Italy I just fell in love with and I kind of got a bit frustrated that I couldn't speak Italian mm. and I, I was, you know, catching all the jokes, you know, two minutes later and I couldn't order the food and I felt like that was something that I really wanted to do. And so then I went at uni and I just kind of, yeah, fell in love. I... Every every opportunity I could, I would, you know, I was studying politics, so I would do, you know, Italian politics and literature. I would do Italian literature and I just kind of, you know, I lived in Carlton at the time, so I was always, you know, going into the delis and practising my Italian and, yeah, I just fell in love with the whole package (laughs) that is Italy. And, you know, obviously Italy has problems like any place and it's, you know, not the easiest place to live. And, yeah, I just fell in love with it and wanted to learn more and wanted to go back and mm. fell in love with the food and the people. And
0: Did you make it to Naples? Out of- yeah, I've been to Naples,
1: yeah. What do you think? Yeah, it's stunning. It's incredible. Like the history. Very incredible place. Um, the food, the people. Uh, you know, the people are really you know
0: big personalities generally speaking (laughs) yeah I know Um, it was a very incredible experience for me it's very similar to Istanbul mm,
1: really yeah
0: I've never been very very similar just the language is different Mm. but the the generosity the hospitality Mm. the connection to food Mm. I felt like I just had to learn Italian yeah and I could apply all that I'd learned in Istanbul to the Neapolitan culture so it was I'd sometimes I'd be like, where am I again? Like I've totally. had moments where I couldn't remember. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's that's incredible. incredible. Did you learn to make pasta in Italy? Yeah, in Italy. So I, um, I mean,
1: I tried before, like, yeah. I le- you know, did it at home a little bit, but I soon learnt when I learnt the real or the, you know, taught by Italians initially that I, you know, had a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I learnt at the house that I was living, working and living in. One of the... Nonna was she was from Piemonte, I think. So yeah, we made tortellini a lot and yeah, it was great.
0: It was just a priceless opportunity. <laughs> I ate so much pasta and yeah. pizza in Napoli. Like yeah. my friends couldn't believe it. And I did <laughs> I didn't put on any anyway, weight yeah. and they were like, what are you doing? Yeah. I was like, I don't know. There but must also, be something. Like, the, I don't know.
1: You eat it at lunchtime. The portions are really small. Definitely. You know, they're not main meals. There. No, you, know, you have really it your second or yeah, exactly.
0: I ate a lot of pasta though. Yeah, we
1: ate every day. It was wild. Every single lunchtime would be pasta.
0: And I would get told off if I'd have a meal. And there wasn't some kind of carbohydrate yeah, 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 yeah. like it's not a complete meal totally. Olivia. Like, well, without the wine like. yeah <laughs> like I have to work after this like it doesn't yeah the wine at lunch <laughs> thing is great it's on the so weekend good. <laughs> but it definitely I don't know knocks me out for the rest of for the sure.
1: afternoon
0: so why was it important for you to make a year of simple family food You know, following on from Ostro, Ostro felt like almost
1: like a back catalogue of recipes, recipes that I'd collected, you know, in my childhood, but also in Italy, and yeah, when we were talking about the new book, you know, the recipes essentially aren't that different in style. You know, they're not a drastic, you know, change of theme or anything. But when we're talking about how we're going to package up the book, it kind of just made sense. Like my, my discussion with the publisher was, you know, I already cook seasonally. I already talk about it a lot. I talk about it in the first book, like let's make it really clear and in a really non daunting way, you know, just really appreciating produce and yeah, being excited about the changes of seasons Mm. and the coming and goings of different, you know, ingredients like tomatoes and peaches and just being a bit more in touch with it. And I think people are cooking from it in, you know, the chapters where where it falls. And, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's nice to have that kind of cement, you know, cement my stance on cooking and my philosophy, I suppose. I felt a lot of pressure putting out a second book. It's like the really? second album. Ostro did so well and, you know, then I had something to kind of to follow mm. it up and, yeah, I'm really pleased with how it's been received and... Yeah, I love
0: it. You know, it's got a bit of Japanese recipes in there. I noticed that on your Instagram, your Japanese yeah. food always makes me feel like Japanese. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's really great that you've sort of pioneered that because a lot of people, I think, are so used to just getting what they want when they want mm-hmm. it. Like now when I think about having avocados in winter or mm. like papaya, I, I feel a bit weird. Yeah. yeah. Living overseas for so long and coming back here, I have sort of noticed it more that you mm. could sort of just get anything At any time. And then you have that disconnect Mm. from nature.
1: And I mean, it's pretty wild. Like, you know, Australia is so big and we do have like all these microclimates. Like, you know, it's still like hot in, you know, parts of Australia right now and will be for the whole year. I know. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So like in some ways, like we are so fortunate. But then, you know, there are times when you see, you know, peaches being flown across from the United States and cherries in the middle of winter. I just think, you know, apart from when I'm, like, trying to shoot, like, a Christmas story in July, I'm, like, super thankful that we're there. (laughs) But apart from that, I just think, you know, that's absurd really that we, Mm. you know, we don't need peaches in june like it just no doesn't
0: feel right it doesn't feel right to your body but even if you look at like ancient traditions like ayurveda mm. or chinese medicine mm. they would all say yeah eat what's, what's you know around, around you, you definitely like i have definitely. this naturopath in the uk and mm-hmm. she says you don't need to eat gochu berries you don't need to eat <laughs> that stuff that's mm. done miles and miles she's mm. like you can eat local food yeah it's grown locally totally and that will make you the healthiest yeah Well, it
1: just makes sense and like in my book I try to explain it makes sense on so many levels you Mm. know financially oh yeah you know locally grown in-season food is more affordable and I want to say cheaper because I think like you know there's difference you know affordability and paying farmers the right wage you know that kind of thing but um more affordable tastes better you know, lasts longer, lasts too. longer. Yeah, it's better for the environment. It hasn't traveled mm. on so many levels. If anything, like it tastes better. So, that's yeah. you know, people are so concerned with the taste, like just worry about the taste of the food, and yeah. the rest will follow. All we can do is like try our best, you know, as well. Like, mm. I think I didn't want to come at it from this kind of like a hard line because you know, perspective. Is hard yeah, as like well. I buy, like, I have a five year old and a 15-month-old, like, I buy blueberries, like, out of season sometimes because, yeah, like, <laughs> They love them. It gets to a point in winter where it's like, okay, no more apples and oranges for them, you know? They yeah. just refuse. None of us are perfect and we just try our best and do what works, find what works. And,
0: and often it's the information that's given to us. Like, I mm. recently read this thing about eggs mm. and free-range is actually very misleading and mm. I thought free-range meant the chickens had free-range mm. but actually it just means... They were a little bit more space mm. than caged. And I was like, oh, I feel really misled because mm. the word free range, you wouldn't think they weren't. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so know. much like greenwashing. Exactly. And, and so yeah. then I read, well, actually, the only way to to be sure that the mm. chickens are having space and is to buy organic. So mm. they're about double the price. But you then have the assurance that Mm. the chickens are treated well and they're not, like, plucked and de-beaked and all this horrific stuff. Yeah, totally. So – And, I mean, you know,
1: in an ideal world we'd be living in these, like, self-sustainable, you know, houses where we could grow – you know, I just recently visited, um, like, the Future Food Mm. system in Fed Square. I don't know if you know about it. It's, like, by Yoast – Backer, who's a kind of environmental amazing person, <laughs> and they have built this like self sustainable? house in the middle of fed square in the city wow, i should go look at it it's incredible and matt stone and joe barrett are cooking from there and they're making everything from things that have grown they've like got fish and yabbies fruit and vegetables and it's incredible and you know it doesn't have a base like it's held down it doesn't have a foundation so the house is held down by the soil from the on the roof mm. it's incredible and Amazing. like you know it's kind of to show us that like
0: there is so much that we can do in such a small space and I think it's we could do so much more even if we had more knowledge of like what you know the indigenous Australians did the foraging you can do all that stuff as well like Mm. we could use a lot more of the plants that are around us Mm. and not be so disconnected there's Mm. this woman I follow on Instagram I think her handle is the black forager
1: okay cool
0: I'll confirm that (laughs) um but she foragers mm. these incredible things. Like recently, she made magnolia cookies. Yeah, so good. Um, just with magnolias that were in her street that yeah. had fallen, and just like yes, yeah, so I was. I think she's wildly, yeah. clever. And I think it is like it is knowledge, and a lot of mm. that is
1: passed down. Like it's yeah. same as recipes. You know, a lot of it is oral, orally passed down, and a lot of it is our priorities. Like even with cooking, like getting back to you know just mm. sharing a meal around the table every night yes, we're all so busy, but you really do have to, like, actively make it a priority, I think. I agree. Like,
0: and... For your digestion even. Yeah, if yeah. you're sitting and watching a screen while you eat <laughs> yeah. versus yeah, sitting yeah, yeah. down enjoying someone's company and yeah. actually properly chewing and paying attention, I think
1: yeah. your body
0: will be healthier. And but,
1: th- but I think with kids, you know, like, we've got two kids and I just think it's so important for them. Mm. Yeah, I think we have to actively, you know make it a priority to do it because if we didn't it would be so easy to like slip away so I think Mm. it's with anything you know you just have to make it a priority I suppose
0: (laughs) yeah it's a template it's a template for their future as well because that'll be a great memory yeah definitely so on that note so since starting your family has your cooking mentality changed Mm. or has the way you approach cooking altered at all or has it in a way been ingrained I think you know a lot of it is ingrained like I still make
1: fresh pasta and I still enjoy cooking kind of, you know, longer recipes and, you know, travelling all across Melbourne to buy produce and things like that hasn't really changed that much. But I think my writing has changed or my understanding of, you know, the average family or Mm. like time constraints I think has changed a lot more. I think I did have Haruki when I wrote Ostro, but I think, yeah, perhaps it was a little bit more, yeah, romanticised and there was a lot of time-consuming recipes which is great and there's a place for it and on the weekends and things but I think the more and more I cook you know with two kids I find that balance is becoming easier in my mind of what I think people want perhaps and like what people have time for mm. um, whilst offering you know interesting food and, yeah and yeah so I think it's changed in that
0: sense um, that's exciting yeah yeah <laughs> Are you done with babies, or do you think you'd have a? <laughs> I don't know yet. Yeah, you know, third book, third, third baby. Book. Yeah,
1: I don't. I know it's kind of gone like that, hasn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think still, you know, I'm 32,
0: so oh, I feel like I still have age. time. You have so much time. Yeah, <laughs> lots of
1: time. Yeah, lots of time, and just um, you know, it's hectic, and having a career and having two young kids
0: is yeah, pretty hectic. So I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Yeah so you mentioned that you travel around melbourne to source produce yeah. could you give for all the melbourneian listeners <laughs> maybe a rundown of your non-negotiables
1: yeah yeah i do and i have you know i feel like producers or like you know little shops and stuff they almost become like your friends you know totally. you <laughs> kind of have your spots you go and where do i go i mean you know the Butcher, I really love. there's a few I love. There's Donati's on um, Lygon Street, which is kind of that like old school Italian vibe. They, you know, they've got opera playing. There's fresh flowers in there. It's really cool. And then Meat Smith, I really like. Yeah. I just have a really great range, and they sell my book, which is nice. <laughs> oh, they're good friends. <laughs> they're good friends. Um, Fishmonger. I really like Ocean Made, which yeah. is in Collingwood. It's just super fresh and they supply to a lot of restaurants. Mm-hmm. So, like, the retail spot is really small but it's really, you know, you can ask for anything and they can get it in. And then I also love Claring Gold in Pran Market. Cool. Um, and in Pran Market also, I could just go on though. This is, I don't think I could do five.
0: Okay, that's fine. You can go 55 if you need.
1: Uh, you know, there's Gary's Meat, there's Maker Munger for Cheese in Pran Market. We also, wine, black carts and sparrows. Uh, there's an awesome cheese shop in Brunswick actually um, called Harper & Blom. Olivia is awesome. She is great at kind of knowing exactly what you want, you know, when you go in. And they also sell this mascarpone, which is really hard to find. It's an Italian one, so I go there for that especially. I'm in North Fitzroy, so it's like Yeah, you're in a great epicentre of yeah. food. And, you know, there's loaf of bread around the corner and also wildlife bakery, mm. which I love. Dock Deli in Carlton for a ton. Yeah, Mediterranean wholesalers. I love that as well. I love well. it too. Even just for the basic stuff like biscuits. Yes. Like pasta. Yes. And, yep. you know, they, like I go Mijana. there a lot because I do pasta classes. Yes. Yeah. And um, we use a lot of parmesan and you, yeah. know, you buy the chunk and then they grate it for you in the deli. Yes. You know, like little things like that. And Save you, can, you about an
0: hour of grating. Seriously.
1: <laughs> you know, you can have your cannoli and your yeah. coffee and it's good. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah.
0: This is making me <laughs> ravenous. Like I I wasn't hungry when we arrived and I'm just like I just like can see Palmer's in like grating <laughs> slow Shower. motion.
1: <laughs> Shower of palm. Oh thanks
0: so Thank much you. for being with us and inviting us right. into your home. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks, Thank Julia. You. Thank you so
1: much.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Julia on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. For more information on Julia, follow her on Instagram at Julia Ostro. And be sure to check out her latest cookbook, A Year of Simple Family Food. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fecho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Elva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. Iset is said to have appeared from the world tree, which stood by a lake of milk. A pale young man was standing beside the tree. The goddess nursed him with her milk and his strength grew 100-fold. This was her first act and an expression of her nurturing strength. Until next time, stay curious.